Welcome to Stocks Not Sports, the podcast where we try to talk about investment ideas in the same casual way we talk about sports with our acquaintances, work colleagues, friends, and family members. This podcast is brought to you by Infor Financial Group, who is committed to providing innovative, forward-thinking financial advice to all of their clients and customers. I'm Kenrick Sylvester, Principal and Head of Distribution. I have to note the following disclaimer. This podcast is not to be taken as investment advice, and participants or employees of Infor Financial Group may own securities discussed in this podcast. While we love all of our guests, this podcast may contain forward-looking statements, investment opinions, and comments that we do not agree with at all. Now listen, uh, how much money you made from the last fight? I mean, how much money did you clear? About 37 grand. I know, taxes kill you. What do you yeah, want to do with your money you. now? You want to put them on the street? Um, Tony, I just got married in here. I know, and I'm happy for you. How's about investing in condominiums? It's safe. Here. Condominiums? Yeah, condominiums. I never use them. With us today is Joseph Nakla founder and CEO of Tribe Property Technologies. Tribe provides the most comprehensive suite of products and services for managing multifamily residential communities. Tribe is at the leading edge of a major digital transformation in the real estate industry as property managers are increasingly turning to technology-based solutions to support property owners' needs. In short, Tribe is disrupting the traditional condo and rental management marketplace by simplifying residential community living and simultaneously connecting owners, councils, boards, property managers, landlords, developers, and trades in a community network. Joe, welcome to the show. So good to be with you. Thanks for having me on, Kenrick. So instead of taking a few minutes to tell us about your background, we'd like to do a little speed dating questionnaire where we try to learn more about you in a few seconds. You ready? I love it. I've been married for a long while, but I'm always uh, ready to, to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a, a polite way of saying, let's get, let's get dating here. What is your post-secondary education? I, uh, after came, coming to Canada, I studied civil and structural engineering and uh, learned pretty quickly that uh, uh, my interests were actually on the business side. And from there, I went into uh, uh, a Bachelor of uh, Executive Management for IT. Books or podcasts? Embarrassed to say podcasts, just too difficult to, uh, even while in the car and traveling, I, I'm, I'm actually almost hooked on podcasts right now. All right. Good answer. Good answer. Beer or wine? Uh, easy going, I'd say a little bit more beer than wine. Sweet tooth or salty snacks? Yes, please. I think that would be my answer. <laughs> I'm a snacky guy. <laughs> I like my snacks. Hopefully more healthy than others. Okay. So on to TV, linear or streaming? Streaming. Okay. What show are you streaming or watching right now? Okay. I, I tried to resist, but everybody kept telling me you got to watch um, F1 on Netflix. And I started oh, awesome. and I am hooked. I'm not even a cars guy and I'm hooked. But I really enjoyed both uh, Super Pumped and The Dropout, uh, maybe because I have a soft spot for entrepreneurship and, and the pains they go through. What is your favorite thing to do around the house when you're not working? Uh, I'll admit that it's probably watching soccer or making cured meats. Making cured meats? Yeah, like smoking meats, barbecuing meats. I, me and meats go a long way back. Okay, we're gonna have to have another conversation about uh, you and meats. Favorite music, R&B, hip-hop, reggae, rock, pop, jazz, country, or classical? I actually have a very diverse playlist, but I think my go-to would be 60s and 70s rock. Okay, so when you're curing meats, what song would you listen to? Uh, probably a, a, a Bob Dylan old school 65, 66. I'm kind of making myself sound like 100 years old, but I actually just <laughs> love those you know, uh, songwriters from the day. Excellent. If it was your last day on earth, what would be your final meal and where exactly would you be enjoying it? Needless to say, I'll have meat in it. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> It's probably a Middle Eastern barbecue with all the mezzes and the sides on it. I was born in Alexandria, Egypt, but I think if I wanted to be somewhere, I may be on a hill overseeing the Red Sea uh, in a place called Sharm in Egypt. That's just a, a magical place watching the sunset there. You paint a really pretty picture with that, so we <laughs> could talk more about that as well. So industry question, in your opinion, again, excluding the birth of the internet, what has been the most important recent advancement in the world of property management? I mean, maybe related to the internet, I would say mobility, um, the ability 
for people to be mobile and actually do some really time-sensitive and mission-critical things. So maybe uh, the, the birth of, of bandwidth meets mobility processing, i.e. smartphones. This is probably the biggest thing we've seen that can actually uh, or has been able to make a difference for, for property management. Love to hear a little bit more about, uh, about your career. So you founded Tribe in 2012, but prior to that, you spent close to 14 years at TO Networks, most recently as COO. Uh, by all accounts, TO was a very successful business that was eventually sold to PayPal in 2017. So what first attracted you to the Tribe opportunity and what finally pushed you to make the move? So my time at TO was incredible. I was, I, was, I was young and pretty much most of the executive team there were very young and it was our biggest real big venture. And we learned so much and it was just an incredible experience. Through that, I, I learned about um, the power of, of digital services uh, and how it can make a big difference in people's lives. And as, a, as an immigrant to, to Canada, I came when I was 16 years old, I'd always been intrigued about densification and the way people live in communities. And when I came to Canada at 16, I, I had a, a pretty uh, concrete vision of how I lived in Egypt. And we lived in a, in a concrete building in a, in a lower middle class kind of community and everybody did things for each other. And it was, it was really, really rich um, in, in terms of community values, maybe not in, in, in dollars. And then when I came to, to Canada, I've always been intrigued about the way people lived in these communities and buildings. And really, there was one stat that I read, uh, and it was actually U.S. stat, but it probably was validated within the Canadian realm as well. Less than 50%, it was almost 42% of people that live in what they call HOA or homeowner association or a condo uh, infrastructure whereby you're, you're sharing you know, assets with, with neighbors would recommend their property management experience to others. And I was shocked with that because I was thinking, what in the world as an industry can survive with less than 50% satisfaction? So that always caught my eye. There was always a really interesting uh, uh, paper that was written by the Vancouver Foundation that spoke, and it was, it was released in 2011, about how cold Vancouver was. And they weren't referencing the temperature. They were speaking about you know people that move into the city and you know they live in this dense quarters, but they still don't get to know each other. And why is that? And, you know, that's a whole nother podcast on its own in terms of socioeconomically why that is. But it's always been an intriguing thing for me. And and I felt the more I, I dug deeper into how these buildings are built and how they're handed over to the homeowners and, and that life cycle and the, the complexities of these communities, I, I just fell in love with the problem, if that makes any sense. And I, I felt that technology can play a role in providing some harmony to these communities. So now you've, you're in Tribe, you founded the business and you're up and running. Was there an aha moment that made you think, yeah, this is definitely the right business move for me? Yeah, there's a few. Probably the biggest one is, aha, solutions or software alone can't fix this problem. So we went from pure software company to software back services company. And, and, and not to, to sound smart or try to sound smart, really what, what, what's meant there is we built software for the buildings to be managed properly. And then we had to put it in the hands of the traditional companies that were servicing the market. And then the quicker we learned that it isn't just about making great software, it's about making great software and training people and enforcing the protocols to ensure that the software and the digital transformation is, 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 is completely deployed in a building. So that kind of forced our hand, or some will argue was a strategic move, to actually go ahead and become a full property management company, like fully licensed and actually start competing with directly with a traditional property management model. So that was a big aha moment for us. And that obviously was a was was a big change uh, in terms of our ability as an organization to to grow. Fascinating. That's interesting. Uh, before we do a deeper dive into your business, can you please walk us through some of the industry dynamics? I know in a past conversation, you referred to the quote, much needed digital transformation in the real estate industry and that it's still in the early innings. Uh, for me, it's somewhat similar to the digital transformation currently underway in the healthcare industry. So how is technology enabling property managers and property owners to interact more seamlessly when it comes to shared services, community marketplaces, data data management, et cetera? You, you, you've asked a great question earlier about other than the internet and you know what else was, was massive in terms of being able to aid the industry to come into the 21st century. And you know for, for people to really understand the power of digital transformation in the industry, they really need to understand the complexity of the, and the dynamic there. Uh, still a lot of people live in single family homes 
although the trends are showing that more and more people are selling their single family homes and you know maybe they're empty nesters or and 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 they're handing over some capital to help the kids and and they're you know moving into a condo so they're actually in some cases at a much older age moving into these communities and realizing oh this is owning a condo or it could be a penthouse it could be high end low end doesn't matter this is different than owning a full home uh, and having full control of our home previously so when you look on a condo dynamic, the complexities there are massive. You've got maintenance fees that are paid monthly on behalf of the of the owners. Um, there is an erected, essentially, condo corporation uh, members, board members uh, in, out west. We call them strata members. Out east, it's, it's condo corporation uh, board. And this group is a bunch of owners that are actually coming together to ensure the present and the future of the community is is in good health. Then they hire a property management company that comes in to help enforce um, the federal, the provincial, and state, as well as even local rules uh, and help adjust those. And then you got billions of dollars, up to 100 billions of dollars between Canada and the US that get spent annually to maintain these assets just under the condo or, or the HOA banner. And then you got a long list of vendors that have to step into these communities to actually do the work and ensure that they're they're healthy. So when you throw all that stuff in a blender, what you end up with is a tremendous amount of transactions and paper trail and history and warranties and, and items that, you know, in a brand new community, there's this warranty items associated with the developer, some with vendors. So it's a, it's a pretty complicated world that I'm kind of painting the picture of. When you look at that, you wonder, okay, where does technology play. And, you know, when you take the complexity of what I just described, really at the end of the day, we felt that that we need to educate people that live in these communities. Because despite the fact that right around us, there's cranes and massive towers growing everywhere and and they're pre-selling right, you know, within days, what's really happening is people got to get educated on that new lifestyle they're about to be living in. And the same goes if they're living in a rental building. So it's a massive piece of heavy lifting that has occurred through education. And we're not going to be writing books and handing over to people that are moving to these communities. So when you need to do something in the building through our app, you just get a little bit more education, explain to you how the workflows are and do the heavy lifting for you from a self-service point of view. And then there's a whole world of financial management. Uh, Our organization, even though we took our first building under management in 2018, we currently have almost $22 billion under management in our organization. So not to impress you, just to impress upon you the, the, the growth that we've experienced. And with that growth comes a bigger need to be able to satisfy the the needs per community. And every community is different. There's, there's stuff that we manage that is very high end in the da- downtown core, incredible amenities and significant amount of rules that have to go around it. But they still have the exact same types of problems. There's still homes for people. So, so with all that complexity there, we needed to build a platform that has a lot of interesting tools and it has to be smart enough to do a lot of the heavy lifting behind the scenes for the, for the community. That's interesting. And you've already touched on this, but I wanted to just talk a little bit about urbanization trends. So according to StatsCan, large urban centers or central metropolitan areas in Canada are growing more rapidly than ever before. So from 2016 to 2021, the downtown populations of large urban centers grew almost 11%, which is more than twice the growth rate when compared to the previous five-year cycle. So I think that's pretty strange. I mean, you definitely, we're all hearing about uh, more urban sprawl and the move away from the downtown core as a result of the pandemic. But again, from 2016 to 2021, large Canadian cities like Montreal, Calgary, and Toronto had population growth of 24%, 21%, and 16% respectively. So in your view, why is this happening? And can we expect that uh, trend to continue going forward? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's interesting. When, when you take a global view, uh, 2017, I spent a good chunk of that year traveling globally, looking at urbanization trends around the globe, and within the lens of residential living, they've looked in the Middle East, have looked in, in Australia, Hong Kong, you know, Singapore, so on and so forth. And, and those trends are happening everywhere. And uh, you'll appreciate this. When I left Egypt 1989, uh, 92% of the population was living on, on 6% of the land. And uh, the joke is like, 
why is that? Is it like really people want to live next to each other? And, and then the quick answer obviously was it's right around the Nile and urbanization was very directly related to being able to farm and, and be close to the cities. That's changed, thankfully, due to improvement of technology and, 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 and making more areas more livable. I don't know what the ratios are now, but but it's it's I grew up within that within those dense environments and I understood the complexities. Well, not all of it, but I understood the the challenges represented by that. I think from a Canadian lens, we do need to separate the conversation about the effect of the pandemic, meaning we work from home, um, so we no longer are tied in terms of distance to how close we are to our office, to the desire to be living in these communities. And and while I, I don't think there's been studies or stats that speak to do people prefer to live in a single family versus a condo, you're running out of land, so there's really only one way to go, which is up. And we're seeing that in, in, in assemblies that are occurring here. Assemblies, you know, this is a fancy way of saying developers coming in and purchasing 10 or 15 or 50 single-family homes and going out to, to the city to rezone them, to build towers and put a lot more density into that market. So we're seeing more and more of that. So lack of, of, of space plays a big role. But I also think average of household in, in Canada now is, is above a million dollars. And, you know, a condo could, you know, depending on where you, you are, it could be as little as two, $300,000. So there's a lot of price elasticity, at least visually, for people that want to own. You know, I'm 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 24-year-old, I'm a young professional. I'm just not going to be able to afford a 1.2, 1.3. And all of a sudden, but I may be affording a $500,000 or $600,000 condo. So that price elasticity kept moving up and, and it made more sense. There's a lot more buyers for that market. So I think a lot of developers... A, identify that, and B, I do also think people from a lifestyle point of view are changing the traditional model, gone are the ways of mom and dad love, you know, their single family home, I'm going to buy a single family home. That's interesting. We might as well go there. I think it's not going to be a surprise to anyone when we say that housing prices are unaffordable for most young families. So I'll give you these stats, and I'm sure you've seen them. Downtown Vancouver and Toronto are by far the most densely populated areas in Canada, and clearly housing prices reflect that. So according to the Canadian Real Estate Association, the average price for a home in Canada grew over 11% to over 796000 in March 2022. And more incredibly, the average price for a home in the greater Toronto area grew almost 35% to $1.3676 million. And the same home in greater Vancouver grew 21% year-over-year to $1.36 million. So again, it, it totally makes sense what you're saying. It just seems like it's going to continue to push new families to the condo market or, or multifamily residences. No, that's that's absolutely correct. I mean, what's really interesting is uh, one of our, our great partners, uh, you know, publishes some wonderful readings on on kind of average household incomes, but they actually take it two, three layers deeper where they kind of look at wealth transfer. And I'm really specifically speaking about, you know, again, let's just take Vancouver or Toronto, you know, a couple with two kids or three kids, you know, the kids are out now. And, you know, the mom and dad now live in this house. It's too big for them. You know, it's worth $3 million or $2.5 million. Are they better off staying there with all the additional costs running with it? Or as the kids now are, are you know, getting their mid-teens or sorry, mid-20s and maybe getting married or, or, or moving on with their lives, are we better off selling that $3 million home, giving every kid, you know, a million or half a million dollars for a down payment slash, you know, a really moving, uh, help them take a massive step forward in terms of home ownership through a condo. And then me and my wife or this couple can move into, you know, a million dollar top end condo. So that wealth transfer is in the tens of billions. It's not really being discussed enough, I don't think. What that's doing is it's driving, you know, more more essentially demand uh, on the condo market. So that's also pushing urbanization. While we think interest rates going up, it's going to play a perhaps a role in cooling down the market, you know, the demand outstrips the supply in a massive way for the next foreseen future. So let me ask you this, I guess it's kind of between the devil and the deep blue sea. If we talk about rental markets in urban centers, they're not really much better. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Toronto Real Estate Board revealed that the average monthly rent for one bedroom unit uh, reached $2,145 in the first quarter. So again, year-over-year increase of almost 18%. And the average monthly rent of a two-bedroom unit up 17% to just under 2900 bucks. So these are both very close to the record highs set just prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
So I guess literally the million dollar question, and you've already touched on it, if we're in an environment where interest rates and mortgage rates are rising, will single family housing become more affordable and you will see, or will you see a bit of a switch and have that affect multi, uh, multi-family residential demand? Yeah, I, I, I smile because I'm not sure I've been able to nail, you know, uh, housing trends in this in this country of ours. For the <laughs> I don't think anybody has. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, there's some logical areas we can point to. I think the point about interest rates is bang on. Um, I was doing um, uh, a quick uh, read on some of the, the stats before we got on the, on the podcast here. And I noticed when people are purchasing, as you obviously probably know, they get pre-qualified from a finance point of view and they're given a range where they can be at. I don't know about your friends or the people that you know, but the overwhelming majority of people in my ecosystem, they tend to go buy right at the top end of the range and not thinking what the world is going to look like with interest rates moving. So, you know, if we use some of the stats used earlier and assume that people put a $200,000 down payment on a $1.2 million home, and that's a big if, I think the stat I read is in the, and and you have an open mortgage, uh, your your mortgage has gone up by about $700 a month in a span of, of less than 90 days. That's not an easy number for overwhelming majority of Canadians to manage monthly. So this is on the ownership side. So the effect of that naturally would be if these homes, <clears throat> interest rates, and cost of ownership is is growing significantly, what is the effect on rent? And I always tell anybody that will listen to me, I say cash is king, and cash is more king when interest rates are higher. So if you could go rent, and your rent is much lower than the homeowner that bought it and spent 10% or 20% down payment on then the delta should be put in the bank because that cash with interest rates higher will be massive for you when you're ready to purchase and put a big down payment. So really, you hear all the time. I hear it when people come to Vancouver specifically from other uh, markets, they go, you know, like wealthier people that want to purchase assets, they can rent them out. Want to purchase condos or homes, they can rent them out. They all say the return on that is not very good because we're paying such high price up front that the rent is actually hasn't caught up to the cost. I'm not generating 8% or 10% annually. What that tells me is rent still wins uh, at this point, because especially if you're disciplined and you're able to put some money aside, because it'll increase your down payment and the market will eventually cool down. It's already just the Vancouver market alone or, or British Columbia market supply went from less than a month, believe it or not. And now it's up to three months. Now, an average normal market is five months of, of inventory available. So right now we're still still a hot market, but that's going to cool down. And when it cools down, those people that have been renting well and disciplined to put money aside, those people are going to be in a really good place to put that down payment and, and purchase something. So your platform connects a broad base of users, including owners, uh, councils, boards, property managers, landlords, uh, developers, and trades. Could you please describe residential living on a day-to-day basis and how communities are becoming more complex and interconnected when it comes to communications and services? So maybe use a concrete example, uh, I don't know, a gym and a condo is getting renovated. How, How is that interaction with all of the stakeholders? Yeah, it's incredibly complicated, actually. Let's, uh, to your point, let's take a, a concrete example. Let's take a, a downtown building, downtown Toronto, uh, 100 homes um, in, in there. There's the council that we mentioned earlier. This building could have a on-site concierge. There's activities. There's probably 200, 300 packages coming in a week that have to be managed. There is some security massive amenities uh, floor or two with all kinds of bookable needs. And there's also uh, a homeowner that lives in unit 604. This person does want to do some renovations there, has to fill out some forms, make sure to get approvals from council, make sure to get approvals from the building and allow the vendors to come in. So there's access control that's required there and make sure that the neighbors around them are aware of that work and actually get the work done within the uh, specified hours. And every building is different based on the rules and regulations. And then make sure that his insurance is up to speed and the building insurance is aware of the construction that's occurring there. I'm actually not using even a, a complicated scenario. This is actually a scenario that happens every day. So imagine now with all this complexity, 
notifications, permits, approvals, um, FYIs, complaints, uh, accessibility. All these things have to live somewhere. But more interestingly, what happens if, God forbid, this construction was done and then, you know, a year later, there's a problem, there's a leak, and it's being blamed on some of the work that was being done. Where do you go back? How is that history captured? So that's that's a basic example that we live with every day. And if you did it in a traditional way, most of the stuff will be paper-based or emails or texts or what have you. So it's not really captured in one place. There's no history. And And even though the stakes may not sound very big, imagine now if that was a massive project that was associated with the roofing of the building. Uh, and again, it's it's an asset that could be a hundred or hundred fifty million dollar asset, with a spend of two or three million dollars a year on the maintenance part of it. So the dollars become really big really quickly, and the tools haven't caught up, had not caught up, caught up essentially. We're we're certainly making a dent into that. I always say this, especially for entrepreneurs and business people. I say every time you're driving and you look at a big building, that building is a hundred million dollar, hundred fifty million dollar company with about 200 shareholders and it has its own board and it has a spending budget of two to three million dollars with all the liabilities that come with it. And when you think of every building within the context, you start realizing, wow, maybe we don't have enough governance and, and oversight and tools to support that type of a community. You have a lot more than that in, in, in assets or companies that are producing a lot less with a lot less uh, value. That's true. Well said. Uh, I read an article in the Toronto Condo News. Yes, I actually actually did read it. Uh, that stated while Toronto is striving to be a smart city, it has been really slow to modernize and streamline its infrastructure. And I think the same could be said about condo communities when it comes to new solutions to streamline operations, enhance communications, keep track of service requests and projects, everything that you've mentioned, and to manage common area amenities. So I found it interesting. This article suggested that the community could use accounting software for financial transactions and reporting and then additional management software for communications and record keeping. But don't separate solutions just add further complexity to an already complex situation? You know, I have two, two thoughts on this. One is the, the, the importance of tools working together. But if you allow me, I, I do want to get on slightly on my soapbox here and speak about this concept of smart cities. Because, because I think it's so well intended, yet it, it's done such a poor or has such a poor uh, penetration in, in in many of the cities globally, it means well. Yes, it makes complete sense that we take a massive city and connect it all and make it all speak to each other and start creating trends and get visibility on the data and what have you. But to enforce it is practically impossible. And I, you know, without pointing any fingers, I will tell you, you don't have to go very far within the Canadian soil and the U.S. soil to see so many failed attempts to say, we are going to create the smartest city in this area. And the reason I think is because I think it's so much more difficult to create connectivity from the outside into the home. I think it's so much easier to do from inside the home out because I care. I'm in my own home. I care. So if I have tools that allow me to digitize my home and allows me to communicate directly with the building and I have access to all the amenities and it's clear, it's simple, it's elegant from a user experience point of view. It gives, it empowers me because I'm, 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 I'm empowered because I know uh, I'm making decisions, I'm heard. Uh, it's easy to take that harmonized community and put it next to another harmonized community and all of a sudden start sharing best practices and then grow your way from there out. It's so much more difficult to do that from the outside in. And I think that's where a lot of the failure has occurred. Um, because, you know, smart cities, unfortunately, got so relegated to the concept of we're just going to have really, really good fiber optics and good connectivity. Internet is going to be so fast. And it kind of start falling short after that. I think I think that's where, where opportunities becomes um, available, especially with developers building from the beginning. So one of the most unique things about the technology we've built is that we recognize that the livelihood and the activities of a community doesn't just start when people move into the building. It actually starts way before. We work with developers two, three years out before the building is up and running. They've already designed it. They've already brought us to the table to speak to us about the operations of the building in the future. They've already asked us what systems should be going in there. They've asked us trends. What are great amenities? Um, you know, pre-COVID, maybe we would have said something like, hey, a yoga room is a really good idea. <laughs> Post-COVID, maybe that amenity space is better off for, 
for offices that are actually hot desks and you can come and you can plug in, you can step away from your 600 unit condo and it'd be great if you can book that on the, on the app as an example. So we're seeing more of those types of trends changes. But if a developer isn't paying attention and putting all these things together for, for a community, it's too late to start introducing these smart things uh, later. And then once the building is, is being built, Everything needs to be digitized. That way, two years after completion, three years after completion, we're not going back and wondering where all the information is and where did things go and what are the warranty implications. So we digitize all that for them. And as far as homeowners are concerned, we don't, we, we encourage, and any developers that work with us, they no longer give this paper-based binder as a homeowner's manual. And some of them look beautiful, don't get me wrong, but the data in them just becomes stale the moment you receive them because you're always making changes to your home. What we do is we give you an app, and that app is the exact same app that allows you to interface with your building, allows you to manage all your warranty items, but also has all the smart things associated with your home. It has all your appliances, serial numbers, and how to clean them. And so we actually enrich your experience from the mo- in terms of knowledge and data from the moment you move into the building. And what happens with that now is becomes really, really great to exchange and, and, and move on. So if you've, you know, you lived in the condo for two years and you're about to leave, this new homeowner comes in and it gets plugged into the app with all the data and the history. It's not a new experience and they're now got to catch up to all the history of the condo, what have you. And the same goes for property managers. If this property manager moves on and another one comes in, he or she are not completely dependent on how good the records are. Because frankly, traditionally, these records are terrible non-existent many times. We big part of our business is what we call transitions, whereby we we in a building that's being managed by a traditional property management company comes to us. Don't get me wrong, a lot of these companies are great and they work really hard to to ensure that they do well by their by their customers. But still, if you're not using technology, it's sitting on an island, it's sitting in somebody's inbox, some of it is in folders. So one platform that connects with everything, where you can see your financials, where you can see your history, where you can see your transactions, where you can see your voting decisions and, you know, minutes and documentations and manuals and warranty items. I can go on, makes so much more sense because that's what we're accustomed to nowadays. That's one of the reasons I also think, you know, Internet of Things and smart home technology hasn't caught on because there hasn't been enough uh, integration. It's coming, but it's still not there yet. In terms of, you know, my my blinds and my lights and my heaters and my TV, you still have to have 15 apps or 10 apps, depending on how small, you know, your, your front door lock. These things need to start all talking to each other now. And the same goes for the building. You can argue the assets is so much larger and the, the, the stakes are much higher. And we see it as an important connectivity piece. Um, we think of it, uh, frankly, as the operating system of the building. We've talked a little bit about the problems that Tribe is trying to solve. But I found it interesting that it has a long history in property management, as your company's family tree includes a property management company that was founded in 1964. So could you talk about your evolution of your business from a traditional property management company to a tech-enabled property manager? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, we're very proud of that. So truth of the matter is, we started as a software company, pure software. We were licensing our technology to real estate developers to do a lot of the things that I mentioned earlier. And we pretty quickly realized that there is a massive opportunity to go in and and have a full service delivery model whereby our property managers on our payroll under our brand are using our built-in technology. And uh, we were pretty bang on. We went to the market in 2018. And we had less than, you know, maybe 2,000 homes under management. Right now, we have more than 40,000 homes under management. And again, not to impress you, just to let you know, like, this kind of speaks to the, the the void in the market. But on our way of growth, we realized we can go out there and start winning one condo building at a time. And we've got a long list of communities and developments that are that are being built as we speak that we will be completely managing. But we've also identified, if you want to grow faster, that we may consider making acquisitions and consolidate traditional property management companies in the space. And by consolidating them, we we acquire them, we put our technology in there, we transform the service delivery model, we we aim for for the you know eighty percent satisfaction versus the 
you know, 40 plus percent that I mentioned earlier in the conversation. Uh, and our um, MPS score is, is, is 80 plus percent, which we're very, very proud of in the industry. By acquiring those companies, you come across some amazing companies, amazing assets that have been around for so long. So one, to your point, one of the companies we've acquired has been around since, since the 60s, essentially, and they've been doing property management so well. And they're one of the few national players in the country. And we acquired them and we have multiple offices there. And what happens with that is you get this beautiful fusion of unbelievable experience, unbelievable understanding of the market. And then you also bring in the technology to come in and, and actually improve the gross margins and improve the ability for the company to move quicker. So we're, we're very proud of that. And we've made we've made eight acquisitions to date. One is a tech acquisition, pure tech acquisition, and seven are, have been in the property management space. And you'll see us continue to be very active there. Uh, as per your latest financial report, Tribe has over 1.4 million commercial square feet managed over 27.4 condo strata square foot managed and over 11.5 billion in total assets uh, value under management. Also, you have over 100,000 residents in tribe managed communities. Could you please walk us through your three revenue pillars and how you drove 16 million of transaction revenue in fiscal 2021 and how you effectively get paid? We have three pillars. The first pillar is our monthly recurring business. This is a essentially a SaaS service fee that we charge to the communities that we manage. So every condo corporation will have a line item and a budget to be paid to tribe that is for the, the services and all the technology. And we don't nickel and dime our communities. They get all of our software deployed and all their their and, and all their communities are, are digitized. Uh, the second pillar is once the homeowners and the condo corporation is on the platform, they can actually interface or transact on the application. And there's a long list of things that they can choose to do on the platform that historically would have been things that you have to call for or fax or or drive somewhere to receive or, or make a payment using a check. And I can go on long list of things. These we call those operational transactions. So this is the ability for a homeowner or the or the condo corporation to directly interface with the data, the platform, the transaction engine or the rails that we have to actually conduct business. That is uh, a transaction fee, essentially, based on on what they do. Um, A good example would be if you're a homeowner and you want to sell your condo, uh, depending on the province you're in or the state you're in, you're obligated to provide specific certified documentation that show historical performance of the building. And, you know, historically, you would have called your realtor. Your realtor would have called the property management company. The property management company would have printed it and certified it and prepared the package for you to go there to their office, pick it up, and so on and so forth. And uh, what we do is click of a button, you get all that stuff completely certified and in your hands. That's just a good example of that. And then the third one, which is our, our growing, and it's an incredibly exciting area of the business. We have tremendous amount of information about the homes. We know who lives in them. We know we have we have payment relationships with these homeowners. We also know what they're embarking on when they tell us, you know, I'm about to do renovation or I just moved in or I'm about to move out, whatever the case may be. We also know if they have insurance, don't have insurance. So what we've been able to do is erect a division in our organization that goes out and negotiates best offers from service providers and bring this uh, menu of of products and services and put them in front of our homeowners. We negotiate on behalf of 100,000 of our homeowners. We have so much data, so our, our, our leads, if you can call them that, to the service providers is are, are, are very qualified. But more importantly, we ensure that the offers they put in front of our homeowners cannot be found on the street. They're just, they're couponed or discounted to a point that leverages 100,000 buying power, 100,000 people's buying power. So that's been incredibly successful. So a good example of that would be condo insurance. I'm talking specifically your own unit, your own between your four walls condo insurance. 60% of Canadian condos are not insured or underinsured. And it's not a very expensive line item. It's $30, $40, $50 a month to get condo insurance. And uh, so, A, there's an education there. And B, there's a sense of, well, how do I get all my data? Which company do I go to to get my condo insurance? How do I get two or three quotes so I can choose the best one? But we do all that for you with your uh, with your permission. Click off of a button and we take the data that you allow us to, to send out to those underwriters and come back to you with three quotes. And when you transact with that, 
uh, we disclosed to you that A, you got a deal that you couldn't get on your own because of our integrations, and B, we made a commission on it. The commission could be small, whatever the number is, but we communicate that to you. The same goes for really interesting services that are really needed in, in buildings like laundry services, dry cleaning. Think about you know, a building of three, 400 units. How many people grab five, six shirts, get in their car, drive to the dry cleaner, drop it off, go back and pick it up again. Think of the carbon footprint that each one of those transactions takes. Or we can negotiate a deal you couldn't do on your own on behalf of the whole building. And one day a week, truck rolls out, picks up all your laundry, and then a week later comes back and drops off all the laundry or all the dry cleaning. So we got a long list of these types of partnerships that we're introducing more and more of. It looks like you've had really constant growth year over year over the past three years. What are the main drivers of your business going forward and how big is your total addressable market? Yeah, addressable market is 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 massive and it continues to grow. Just in Canadian soil alone, there's more than 100,000 condos being added to the market annually and another 50,000 on the rental side. This is just annual brand new construction. More than 10% of our population in Canada now lives in, in condos and another 10% live in, in, in rental communities. So we're just scratching the surface. 100,000 people is the, the way we have in our communities. Is just, we're just literally scratching the surface, which is crazy when you consider uh, in the last four or five years, we're, we're only one of three national players. And size-wise, we're, we're top five in both categories, rental and, and condo. So we're we're just scratching the surface and we haven't even landed the plane on the U.S. yet. And we have massive aspiration for that market because the problems there are exactly like ours, but they're actually less regulated, which makes it a more desirable market for us to go. And then the, the growth drivers for us will continue to be M&A. We'll be very, very active in M&A and uh, with a healthy balance sheet and patient and very strong uh, shareholders base that are mostly institutional, allows us to really go out there and, and, and play the long game. And we see massive value in continuously growing our footprint, whether it's acquisitions or working and partnering with developers to keep uh, adding more and more brand new construction, brand new buildings and homes into our ecosystem. And then we we still are very active on the organic growth associated with uh, what we call transition, these existing buildings that keep hearing about us or read about us. And once they're interested in our services, they come to us and we convert them into customers. And and all those three engines essentially are well-oiled and, and bought for a, a wonderful future. I have to ask this question. Aside from the developers that you work with, condo boards are notorious for being cheap. So how do you convince them to spend money on a new solution? It's a good, uh, it's a good question. Um, they're ten- they tend to be cheap for a good reason, obviously. They, they want to be fiscally responsible for on behalf of their the homeowners. I think our fees tend to be such a small percentage of the overall spend of the community that when you illustrate to them that by having digital transformation in the community, by showing them historical documentation available to them makes a lot of sense, by showing them that we can avoid many of the obvious mistakes when everything is paper-based, when you improve the life uh, style of communication and the, the people actually love where they live because all of a sudden they know their neighbor and they can communicate with them and they're, they're a lot more informed. All these things are worth a lot more to them. And then I add the fact that I genuinely believe that great tools like ours in the building uh, operating system, what they do is they actually allow you to not make mistakes and actually start saving money. You'll see more activities from us in the next 12 months on that side because we don't just want to stop at helping you manage the community. We also want to start really making a big dent in your carbon footprint as a building and also lowering your carbon footprint and also really giving you best practices to lower your overall living costs. And we think we can do that by way of group buying power, as we mentioned, by way of bringing some innovative solutions. Maybe we want to give you a partnership that allows you to bring in EVs into the building, allowing you to do LED conversions, so all the extra spending lights there, uh, sub-metering solutions, water detection systems, which is a massive problem that costs the community so much money right now. I can go on. There's so many areas where a good digital and a good service provider can offer a community that our cost is literally minimal compared to the big overall spend.
can you t- please walk us through your unit economics and your monthly recurring revenue model? I think it'd be interesting to hear about your margins, churn rates, et cetera, when it comes to the property management software business and the transaction-based community network. Yeah, we generate approximately, our year-end numbers came out, and we, we, we generate approximately $28 per month per home. And then we, we also generate, uh, so that's, that's the MRR, monthly recurring revenue per home, in terms of the software and fees. We uh, generate an additional $6 in transactional revenues where, per home. So this is the homeowners, uh, the condo corporation interfacing directly with the platform. And uh, our third bucket of revenue is still early because we just erected that less than four months ago. But that's the ability for us to take our software products and services and partnerships and bring them to, for people to transact with them, the laundry, the food delivery, all those types of stuff. However, our early numbers indicate massive conversion rates compared to traditional tools whereby, uh, you know, condo insurance were, were converting in the, you know, more than 10% of quotes that come, almost 15% quotes that come back. Um, uh, 50% of the people that receive quotes will actually purchase the policy, which is amazing number. 20% of the people that will find that will see our triple play offer, which would be internet, TV, and uh, phone, uh, with a partnership we have with Telus, twenty percent of brand new construction will actually purchase the offer right on the on the system. So we we're showing some really good economics there, um, but it's a little early for those. And that was always the plan. We'll always just increase our footprint, digitize these communities, and good things will come from there. And uh, and we continue to to have that plan. Our churn numbers are less than four percent, which is impressive numbers for a software company. It's crazy good numbers for a services business, especially in our industry. I keep telling the street, I'll let you know next year, <laughs> thinking maybe the numbers will, as we continue to grow so fast, these numbers are gonna change, but so far so good, I'm touching with as I'm speaking here. Uh, so those turn numbers, you know, less than 4% compared to 10 to 15% in the industry. So 10 to 15% of traditional property management companies revenue will be lost uh, from one side and gain from another side, meaning you know, 10% of the customers will leave, but because the industry also is battling the same problems, another 10% will come through the door. So when you look at those businesses, they tend to be flat lines. And uh, we've been able to keep it less than 4% while growing uh, almost 200% year over year, which we're very proud of. I know you've mentioned this as well. Uh, with approximately 40,000 units under management today, Tribe is already the sixth largest condo management company and the sixth largest rental management company here in Canada. Again, you mentioned you made eight acquisitions in your history. I had two questions. What are your main acquisition criteria and how much firepower do you currently have on the balance sheet for acquisitions? We've got a pretty specific M&A corp dev playbook that I think makes a lot of sense. And at at all times or at any point, we have a a tremendously active M&A group. Uh, Criteria would be um, obviously good people. This goes without saying, but it's really important for us. Uh, Solid business. We don't anticipate those businesses to be incredibly profitable. We understand the challenges in those businesses, but we also can identify through our early analysis of, of, of the operation areas where we can actually make a big dent into into the gross margins. So we look for businesses that are been around, hopefully with lower churn, great leadership, great people in there that want to be a part of our journey. And, and you know, if they're ready to retire, don't want to be a part of it, it's fine too. We've, we've done that. Sometimes we look for geography expansion. Uh, sometimes we look for uh, market segmentation expansion. So it could be maybe a boutique uh, firm in the downtown core with some really specific larger communities, or it could be uh, you know, sprawled, low-rise communities that we don't have a lot of presence in and would like to make a move there. Because we're also active in looking at things around smart technology and um, uh, specifically smart building technology, uh, carbon footprint reduction. So we're active in that area as well. And our balance sheet, um, we've uh, done a, a raise in January, uh, oversubscribed uh, private placement. We set up to raise $15 million. We were very fortunate to upsize that to $21 million. So healthy balance sheet. But you should also know that we have uh, multiple senior debt options available to us due to the fact that a lot of the businesses we're looking to purchase are cash generating. So we're, we're in pretty good shape to, to be very active in the market. Excellent. So not to be uh, interpreted as forward-looking statements, but with the firepower you have in your balance sheet, how much revenue could you potentially add to your top line? Well, we see a direct path to $100 million of recurring business 
We're not there yet, but we, we can see that path. We usually speak to that within five years. Let's talk about your partnerships. So names like Apollo, TELUS, Tridel, Starlight, GW Realty Advisors. Could you shed some light on the difference between your digital partnerships, strata communities, rental communities, and how those partnerships work? Yeah, so developer partnerships are, are different than obviously than our digital partnerships. A developer partnership, you know, a, a more comprehensive one would, would look like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, sometimes uh, a developer will go out there and, and build a master plan community. You know, Mr. Developer is going to come in and, and he or she are going to take on 50 acres and get it rezoned. And they want to build basically a, a small city within the footprint. And we come in there and those partnerships are long lasting. And some of the communities that will be built onto, onto those properties will be, some could be rental, some could be you know, condos, there'll be some retail uh, some maybe even businesses, maybe some community uh, assets for the community to experience. So a long list of things. And, and those are, you know, the, their digital strategy. It goes on with years of partnerships with them. And because these usually don't just get erected in, in one full swoop, they're f- different phases. So at any point, we could be working with a developer in like a five or a six phase project and we could be phase two, phase three, and it's just a, a long journey. So those are long lasting partnerships. Um, with the partnerships, with digital partnerships, uh, as, as the ones that you've mentioned earlier, these are essentially service providers. And some of them, even though they're digital partnerships, they actually have physical presence, you know, a, a retailer that wants to deliver services to homes or a service provider, a company that does maybe renovations. They partner with us because we take their services that we think is relevant to the homeowners. Insurance is a good one. And triple play is a good one. We mentioned that earlier. We take those and negotiate an offer that makes complete sense for our homeowners. But we don't just go out there and send it to everybody. We put these offers in front of the people that make sense for pet insurance. You don't need to be putting pet insurance services to everybody. We already know which homes have pets in them. So wouldn't it be great if we just say, hey, we know you have a pet. By the way, we negotiated a pet insurance offer. You may be interested in. That's what it looks like. And if you're a tenant versus a homeowner, we will give you a tenant insurance offer versus a homeowner insurance offer. So those types of partnerships are are transactional in nature, but they're obviously important because these companies continuously are updating the services that they're offering. And we need to make sure those offers make sense for our homeowners. I wanted to ask about geographical diversification. So you currently have operations in BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec with eyes on major U.S. target markets like Seattle, L.A., San Fran, Boston, Chicago, New York, and Miami. How would the unit economics work in those markets? And where would your U.S. peers trade if you were looking to, quote-unquote, compete for assets in those geographies? The unit economics are actually more favorable, believe it or not. The Look, a lot of people complain about property management and, and the way our government has maybe, especially in British Columbia, interfered with, you know, the, the, the rules and regulations and the Real Estate Council Act, which is which is the, the governing bodies that look at the way we, we manage these communities. And I get it. Sometimes we overregulate. Uh, that being said, this regulation has really forced the hands of communities, developers and property management companies to do it better, to really be stronger, to ensure these communities and these buildings are really, really good, you know, ready for a rainy day. Is a perfect no? Do we have tough stories that you keep reading about? Yes. But overall, compared to some of the other markets globally, we're way ahead, believe it or not. And that really bodes well for a company like us that that leans on its technology quite a bit to ensure that steps aren't missed and, and, and the workflows are really well documented. So when we go down in the U.S. and some of the new markets that are experiencing a lot of this urbanization, actually, believe it or not, a lot of the regulation is primitive or non-existent. So a company that comes in with its own audits and its own checks and balances actually will do really, really well in that market. The unit economics there are comparable. Some will argue even better. Uh, The licensing requirements and the regulation that we have here kind of put a little bit of pressure on our gross margins. We still think regulation is good. However, down south with less regulation, we think the gross margins will actually be stronger. So we we see that as a, as a massive opportunity. Another tidbit that maybe the listeners don't know is a lot of our real estate condo developers here in Canada are actually building in the U.S. We generate some of the most successful uh, developers that are actually taking their, their their craft and actually going ahead and, and building similar communities in size and in some cases much bigger sizes 
in, in some of the big cities you mentioned in the U.S. Interesting. I'd love to turn our attention to the stock for a moment. Uh, to me, the stock looks undervalued with the recent correction in technology stocks. And I know we talked about this before we started the call. Tribe shares are down over 40% year to date. Uh, historically, Tribe has had an impressive growth profile with revenues growing uh, just over 110% from fiscal 2018 to fiscal 2020. Today, Tribe's total enterprise value is approximately 55 million with four revenues. These are just street expectations and what analysts are thinking of uh, anywhere between 25 to 30 million suggesting that Tribe trades at roughly two times EV to revenues with 50% revenue growth. So first, what do you think when you hear that? And secondly, how does that compare with some of your peers when it comes to growth and valuation? Yeah, you got to also add the fact that an incredibly healthy balance sheet. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so look, uh, listeners can't see this, but I, I do have a few grays. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I say that uh, not to age myself, just to say that there's no doubt our company's undervalued, and uh, we get it. When when corrections occurs, it kind of paints everybody by the same brush. But anybody that takes a few minutes to really look under the hood in our company recognizes very quickly that this is fundamentally strong company with a massive, massive upside. Uh, that's how I feel. I put my money where my mouth is. My shareholders are incredibly satisfied and happy with the performance of the of the business and at the end of the day that's really what people invest in is in the business that being said um you know our story is not known many many people probably listening to us don't know about us and we're certainly going to choose the right moment to tell more and more of our story digitally and, and externally and because it's not really an area that most people are aware of i always often say that property management is the largest undisrupted sector that you've never heard of or never thought of uh, because it's, you know, it's a hundred plus million annual spend in these communities and a billion, I should say, uh, uh, spend in these communities. And it's not, there's no one player. If I said to you, who's disrupting transportation, everybody, Uber, Lyft, if I said, who's disrupting, you know, hotel travel, you know, Airbnb, Who's disrupting property management? It's hundred-plus billion dollars just in Canada and the U.S. Nobody can answer that. I like to think the answer will be tribe as we get this story told. So I share all that because, uh, to your point, I think our comparables, it's prop tech companies with much worse gross margins and much less growth metrics than ours are trading for seven to ton, ten times revenue. We've, we've had some research coverage on us that shows that we're incredibly undervalued. You'll see more and more of that coming in the market with some very uh, smart analysts that are way smarter than I am. You know, we just keep our head down, keep our feet moving, keep building the great business that we've got. And uh, we check the stock, but obviously we think that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll react to the performance of the business as we continue to, uh, to build a great company. Oh, man, eye, eye on the prize. So let's touch on career adversity for a moment, if we could. What was your get him off the field moment? You know, the moment you made a big mistake and everyone wants you to shoulder the blame. What was your moment and how did you recover? I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> Being an executive at a much, much younger age than perhaps my experience would have helped me, allowed me to be in a place where where I've made a lot of mistakes, and some are probably very traditional in nature. I'll tell you, you know, I make decisions quick, and 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 multiple moments in my career as I was younger. I kind of wanted to get all the info and all the data and pontificate and make sure that I nailed that decision. And um, historically, while that sounds like a really smart idea, I am now a 100% believer that you sit down, you pontificate, and you don't make that decision quick enough. That is way worse than making the wrong decision, if that makes any sense. And I think that was kind of my biggest learning moment is look at the data you've got, make your decision. Because sitting down and not making a decision on an HR decision, a business decision, acquisition decision, you know, not making a decision quick is is very, very costly and very painful. On the tribe side, the aha moment was not realizing how difficult it is for people to change. So for a long time, I was, you know, I'd sit with those CEOs of those property management companies or presidents of these property management companies. And I'd go, what do you think of the software? And the answer would be, oh, this is amazing. This is going to change the game. And I go, okay, good. So you're going to take this and you're going to deploy it with your custom, with your, your own property managers that work for you. Absolutely. And then six months later, adoption will be like 20%, 30%. You ask the question, why? The CEO of those companies and myself made the mistake of, of underestimating the difficulty of, of change management. And, uh, you know, that's obviously goes for all transformational 
companies. And then when, when we started to realize maybe what we need to do is change the profile, own that relationship directly with the property manager by having them on our payroll, that was a big aha moment. And and if I was too stubborn and just wanted to keep building software and hope for people to just keep licensing and using it without actually owning the full transaction, that would have been another <laughs> get them off the field moment as well. Uh, that's funny. Uh, thank you so much, Joe. Uh, for me, what I've learned is that the digital transformation in residential communities is still in the early innings. And as the number of multifamily dwellings continues to grow with urbanization, then clearly this is a huge market opportunity for Tribe. Is there anything else that you would say to complete the picture? And how should investors think about Tribe Property Technologies as a public company? We are, to your point, transforming a really old school market, but we're doing it while managing massive dollars in a segmentation that continues to grow month over month. It's not a month that goes by without us adding significantly more communities on there. But I think they should think of us as what will end up being really the the aggregator and curator of amazing service providers and putting that at a local click or touch away from the homeowners. We're essentially going to be not necessarily competing with Amazon, but we're essentially going to be the Amazon of your home. And that includes consumption and includes all the spend and renovations and work through that. Nobody owns that market right now in the condo space or the rental space. And we think it's a massive opportunity for us to, to capture. So last question before I let you get out of here. If you could own and run a sports organization, which one would it be and why? <laughs> it would be Manchester United, the soccer team. Um, oh, it would, Man it would probably well. cost me less. I've, I've spent too much money, me and my own son, who are massive, many, actually my whole family, but my son and I, we just came back from watching them in uh, in Manchester to, to abysmal game and, and results. So I'd want to make Manchester United great again, and I would love to run that team. Great. What game are you at? We were at the second leg of the Champions League. It was oh. Manchester United playing Atletico Madrid, and they were in a tie. All they needed to do was just win score one, one goal. Score one goal. I know, I know. Score one goal. I feel your pain. I, this These guys have... It's a, a great collection of players, but that just can't play together. It, mind, it actually reminds me, ironically enough, it reminds me of Chelsea when Abramovich first bought the team. Collection of stars, couldn't get anything done, and then they brought in... Jose Mourinho. So uh, I don't know if Ten Hag can turn the tide on this one, but man, they 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 are painful to watch. I they know, man. They're watch. so hard to watch. I was so angry. It was a, a trip of a lifetime. My son just turned oh 18. So I took him and we watched five games in seven days. You know, just amazing trip. And the most expensive tickets we, and most money we spent was on the Manchester United game. And the most <laughs> fun we had was in all the other four games except for that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I was like, we, I did a trip with, similar for my brother for his, for his birthday. We went and watched United versus Leicester a few years back. And then we went, um, he's a Newcastle fan. So he watched Newcastle, Tottenham and St. James Lovely. Park. And it, uh, it was amazing. Can't understand half of what they're saying though, but <laughs> the Jordy, the Jordy accent, but it was, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, so what do you, what do you think? Okay. Speaking of Abramovich, Chelsea's going to, is for sale. The, I don't know, the price tag is anywhere from two and a half billion pounds to four and a quarter billion pounds, the most for any sports team ever. Does this make sense? No. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I didn't know this. I, I just dug a little bit deeper. I just learned about something amazing. Okay. So, so I know a few sports owners, uh, but in, in Canadian realm. And within that context, I learned that often, you know, the asset, meaning the stadium, that doesn't just equate to the stadium. It actually often comes with a stadium and land around it. And there's massive money to be made in building uh, things around it. So, you know, the new construction that's going to happen at Man United, they're going to be building some towers. And there's actually multiple revenue streams from there. I, I, I share that because, as you may have seen, the, the stadium for, for Chelsea, which is uh, Stanford yeah, Bridge. Stanford, Stanford there's Bridge, really yeah. not a whole lot of land that comes with it. And I didn't know this. There's actually a 51% ownership by a, a trust whereby the owner cannot move the stadium. This is a fan trust, and which means you will never be able to grow the stadium and you cannot even build around the stadium. So, so it's, 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 it's even more of a crazy number when you, when, within the context of you couldn't go and build like four, five, six hundred million dollars worth of towers around and sell them to big investors, what have you. So it makes no sense to me. It scares me because it tells me that United is going to be in the five to six, which... I don't even, which means nobody's going to buy it. I mean, private equity, maybe, but so it, it you know, it's going to be in the hands of Glazers for a long time. I don't know, man. It's crazy numbers. I, it makes no sense. 
You know, it's funny, that's even scarier because I think they had to, they're committed to 10 million pounds of renovations on top of that. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So so it's only, it's the renovation is only going to increase like in a tiny little bit in terms of capacity. You look at all those numbers and you're like, I don't know, man, like it makes no, you know, obviously it's emotional. You know, if you're, if you're worth a hundred billion dollars or $80 billion, what's 4 billion, I guess. You know, so yeah, it's a pay a week's pay. It's a week's pay. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a it's a tax bill. But you know, the dollars are crazy. But yeah, I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to 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 be a fly on the wall to see how those conversations are going in terms of the ROI conversation, right? Amazing, amazing. But yeah, this is another discussion maybe we can pick up uh, offline. But Joe, thank you so much, man. It was so great having you on our podcast. We want to wish you continued success and best of luck with your business, man. Thank you so much. It was a lovely conversation. I uh, look forward to connecting again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, check your app now to make sure that you've subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. I'm Kenrick Sylvester, and I'll see you next time. Problems and personal issues, stories that I make your eyes tear and wet tissue. It's true, I'm mad like the rapper. I'm so upset I gotta put it up in my rap before I snap or after. The things I've seen from Atlanta to Queens to the main streets of Brooklyn when I was a teen. Back and forth to the islands, screamed when I left, but adapted. And still my dreams haven't left, I only hung with the crack kids.